Thank you for that. Well, I wonder how you've been doing all cooped up. There's some people who have been cooped up solo, and there's some people who have been cooped up as a group and a bunch. And both groups have been struggling for different reasons. And so I thought it would be appropriate just right now if I might pause and pray. Um, I would encourage you to, to just keep on keeping on. If God prompts you as we pray to call out and to reach out and to speak to someone, drop something in um, to someone's place now that the physical distancing has, has loosened up, I would encourage you to do that over the coming week and then we might band together and continue to encourage and strengthen one another in the midst of this time. If prayer's new for you, it's speaking to God. Believe there's a powerful God we can speak to. And if you'd like to join with me, why don't you do so now? God, we just want to bring before you the boxes and we pray specifically uh, for Ali and Phil, the family, uh, their mum and the family who's over in the UK. Would you encourage them? Uh, Would you be near to them? We thank you for the hope that Noel had in you. And so there was a confidence beyond the grave, a hope of life eternal. And that makes such a profound difference. Uh, Father, I want to bring before you those who have been struggling in isolation or those who have been challenged, all cooped up together with others. Would you give us your patience and your graciousness? I pray, Father, that you might just um, prompt us and nudge us now. Someone to call, someone to reach out to, someone to do something for that would be a source of loving care and kindness. I pray that you might bring those people to mind. Most of all, Father, I pray and ask that you might speak to us about this in the heat of the moment. And how might we learn from you today? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever found yourself responding in the heat of the moment and saying things or doing things that you wish that you could retract moments after you said them. Perhaps there's been a squabble, an incident that's escalated. You poked and someone else poked back and in the heat of the moment, words came out, actions were said that you know wounded someone. And it's the next day or the day after and you're looking back and you're wondering, oh, if I could just have my time over again. But the time's gone and things have transpired and nothing's quite the same and things need mending. A number of years ago when I had graduated from university, I took a teaching role down in the country and joined one of the local footy clubs. Well, it was the second season I was with the club and I became the the fitness coach. And I remember it was the pre-season, first exercise routine, and we had the whole team together. And it was in that moment I just wanted to kind of stamp my own authority on the team and being the fitness advisor. And so I made some comments about the previous year's fitness uh, coach or some processes that I would change this year to actually improve it. And it just came out all wrong. I remember being in that group and I hadn't realized that the actual fitness coach from previous year was actually there. And in the midst of me saying these things, he outwardly reacted and saw this groan and this grump and this anger and this twitching. And I realized in that moment that I had actually made an enemy rather than building a bridge. And it took the entire season of me trying to actually sort of placate and trying to actually smooth those things over to try and get those things right. Well, I wonder if you found yourself in a situation like that, maybe in the last few weeks, maybe in the years past. Where you're someone who's found yourself in the heat of the moment saying things and doing things that you wish if you had your time over again, you would retract, retreat or do differently. Well, today as a result of the the topic that we're going to unpack, I hope that as a result of putting some of these things in practice, some of the learning elements, that we might live life with fewer regrets, that we might interact in those moments with more grace, with more poise 
and with more kindness. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37 in your Bibles. And as you do so, Genesis is the book of beginnings. We're going to dive in and we're going to see a family at their worst moment. It's going to be a story about Jacob. Uh, Jacob has four wives. He has 12 sons, 12 boys and daughters as well. And if there's one family that's cooped up at home, if there's one family that's feeling the stress and the pressure that you could reach to in any part of the Bible, this one is it. I grew up in a family of uh, four boys. Can't imagine growing up with 12 boys. And usually the most stressful times in the week were just getting ready for church. There's two incidents that come to mind. First one involved a pair of scissors, not just the ordinary kind of paper cutting scissors. We're talking those big old fashioned cloth cutting scissors. You know the ones. And I remember one uh, brother sort of had uh, ticked off or in the heat of the moment sort of rallied or riled up one of the other brothers and they were thrown And they actually were stuck in the side of one of my brother's head. So that was the first one in the heat of the moment. And that wasn't the worst. You see, the worst one involved a lawnmower, a hand lawnmower. You know the ones that had the rotary blades? Yeah. So I have older brothers and they're twins. And so one of them, they would usually egg one another along. And so one of them actually got it and and was pushing it to see how sharp the blades were. And it was cutting the grass. So he said to his brother... Why don't you put your finger in the blades and let's see if the lawnmower has sharp blades or not. And so he did and he pushed it forward. And in that moment, just before going to church, there was a dangling finger and a rush in the ambulance and the saving of one of the appendages on my brother's hands. So families, I get it. Some of the worst times you can have in your week is getting ready to go to church. Well, if you think that's bad, wait to the story that you're going to hear right now from Genesis chapter 37, because we're going to be learning about the youngest by the name of Joseph. And we're going to actually dive into the worst moment in this family's life. Could you imagine this? Let's pick the worst moment in your life, your greatest regret. Let's say you at solo or maybe you as a family, your worst moment of a family. We're going to capture that. We're going to write it in the pages of the Bible. So generation after generation after generation can actually go ahead (laughs) and they can read that and say, wow, I thought my family was bad, but compared to this one, it's nothing. (laughs) So here we go. We're going to dive in. The story is about Joseph and his family and we unpack it. From Genesis 37, verse 2, it just stands, it starts with this innocuous line. This is the account of Jacob's family line. It dives right in from here. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. That were two of them. And he brought their father a bad report about them. So there's three things we learn about Joseph. This is the first one. First thing we learn about young Joseph of 17 years old is that he's a dobber. He would actually go out and in this incident, he actually was watching his brothers do the tending of the sheep or the goats and didn't actually like it. So he went back to his dad and he dobbed on them. Now, if you were part of a family of 12 boys, could you imagine that what that would do to the tensions within the hen house? Yep. The tensions were high. But there's two other things we learn about Joseph as well. As you read on this little section, we discover that 
Joseph is actually daddy's favorite. Yes, that's right. Jacob, the father, does something a father should never do, is he decides upon a favorite. He says Joseph was his child in older age. And so what he loved, if you like, more than anything else was Joseph. And so what did he do? He actually exasperated the situation by designating Joseph as his favorite, by giving him a unique special coat. It says it was a coat with long sleeves. So I don't know what the designer fashion was of the day, but Joseph got a long sleeve coat, this special garment, such that whenever his brothers saw him, they would see that Joseph, they would look at his garment and be reminded that they weren't their father's favorite. Could you imagine how that would stir the pot in a family all cooped up? The third thing we discover about Joseph is that he's a dreamer. We discover early on that God speaks to Joseph in dreams, but yet Joseph is so young he doesn't know how to interpret them or how to actually convey them. He has a dream one night of sheaves of wheat that are bowing down, and he says it to his brothers, and they know that it's a dream about them one day bowing down to the authority of their younger brother. You could imagine how that would grate. Joseph has another dream. This time it's the sun and the moon and the stars bow down to him. And he relays it to his family and he's his father and mother. They say, "What do you think we're going to be bowing down to you when we're older? That the older are going to serve the younger? And so Joseph, in this, this sort of uh, infantile, immature way, he shares his dreams with others in a way that only just stirs the pot and aggravates the whole And there's a mess that's just all coming together. Three things we discover about Joseph. He's a dobber. (laughs) He's daddy's favorite. And he's a dreamer. And here we have the story as it progresses. Is that one day, Jacob unwisely says to Joseph, I want you to go and find your brothers and come back and give them a report to me about them. Now, if Jacob was switched into the dynamics of his family, this is probably a very unwise thing to do. Or perhaps maybe he is aware of the things, but he wants to use the younger son, his favorite, to go and give a report to see how they're doing, to check up on them. So that's exactly what Joseph does. If you like, he goes for a walk and he wanders out into the wilderness. He eventually finds his brothers. It says that when he finds his brothers or when he's walking towards them, his brothers actually see him. It goes like this. With some of the brothers that have gathered together, they see him coming from a distance. He says, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. You could just sense the tension in the words. That one who's dreamt about us bowing down to him. You can imagine in the heat of the moment what sort of stirs up with them. They're in the wilderness, they're alone, and they see their brother coming. And we sense here that they see him coming because they can recognize him from afar because of that, that garment, that special robe. The one that shows their father's favoritism. The one that they can spot from a long way that just reminds them that daddy has a favorite and it's not them. So you can see if you feel like the knot turning, the stomach churning as he approaches. So they say this, come now, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these cisterns, these, these, these uh, holes in the ground normally the water would collect in and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of him and his dreams. So as they're walking closer, if you like, as as Joseph is getting closer to them, all of a sudden we discover that as you read on, Reuben, the eldest brother, comes into the fray and starts to listen and hear what's going on. 
There's a little pause in the conversation. And Reuben, gathering up what's happening and transpiring, he jumps in to try and save his brother. And it goes on and says this, When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue them from their hands. He said, Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Let's throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness. But, they, but don't lay a hand on him. It seems as though Reuben being the older one, he knows that he's responsible for the younger. He's the one who brings some sense into the situation. And he says to them, why don't we just throw him in a cistern? He could rot there. Meanwhile, Reuben's thinking, if I can get to him later on, I'll rescue him out of it and I'll deliver him safe back to my father. But right now it's dangerous, so let's have an interim plan. Well, that's exactly what happens. Joseph arrives, they grab him, they throw him into an empty cistern, and they sit down as though that's it, he's dealt with, he's done with, that's what we'll do. And then it goes on and says these words, As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. You see, as they sit down, they're having a meal. All of a sudden, there's this caravan, these slave traders, these traders who are heading down to Egypt. And Judah, one of the brothers, comes upon a thought. He says, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's do something better than just kill him or throw him and waste him in a cistern. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. You can imagine all the brothers gathering around and going, oh, that's a great idea. How awesome. Let's not kill him. Let's not let him waste in a cistern. Let's, I know, let's sell him to these slave traders and we can at least make some profit from our brother. What a great idea. Now, I'm not suggesting to you for a moment that any of these ideas are really good ideas, but that's what happens. It says that Reuben comes back. We don't know where he's been and he hears about what they've done. And he's distraught. He says, what will I do when I return to my father? I'm the one responsible for everyone here and the youngest. And so they scheme and plot another plan. They get an animal, they sacrifice it, they take its blood. They've stripped Joseph of that coat of affection, that, that object that just reminded them that they weren't daddy's favorite. And they dip it in the blood and they tear it up and they bring it to their father and they don't tell him what they've done, but they allow him to draw his own conclusions. They present the garment to him. And the father right there, he draws his own conclusion and says, look what's happened. My, my son Joseph, the one who I love, has been set upon by wild animals. They've killed him, they've devoured him, and he's been torn to shreds. And it says in that moment that Jacob grieves and mourns for the rest of his life. And they discover right there in that, in that moment that they've got rid of one problem, but they've just created another. Now they're dealing with a, a father who's heartbroken. And then the story concludes in this section. It says, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Hmm. What can we learn from this? What does it say to us about in the heat of the moment? Because there's a story, one story that stands out of everyone being all cooped up and responding and reacting in the heat of the moment. This is it. Well, the first thing and the most profound thing is if you read this story on, this is just the plot that sets up the whole narrative. 
What we discover in this low point in this family's life is that God can bring even good. And not just in a short period of time, but in the long reach. Sometimes you and I are listening here right now need to hear that God sometimes does his work in the long time, not just the immediate present. He can take those situations and those circumstances that seem for bad or for evil and somehow in his way, he might weave them for good. I wonder if you need to hold on to that hope today. But there's something also beyond God's sovereignty in this story that I think we can learn about in the heat of the moment. And it has something to do with the mechanics of the story. Why the narrator put them in in the first place. Did you notice the way in which the story unfolded the events if you like it started off with a plan plan a was let's kill him and then all of a sudden reuben steps into the fray and there's some conversation and it's moved to plan b well let's not kill him let's just throw him in the cistern reuben's plan was to save him later on they thought it was to at least have him rot in there and of course there was the third plan plan c Let's actually just sell him. Let's not kill him. Let's not throw him. Let's sell him. I wonder if there's something we can learn about the mechanics of this story. And apart from God's sovereignty, which is profound in this narrative, that's been a friend to Joseph, that's written there in the text, but it's just behind the scenes. You see, the plans move from the peak and it de-escalates. Let's kill him. Let's throw him. Let's sell him. None of these options are good. But they made a profound difference in his life. I want to suggest to you that the unspoken friend of Joseph all through these series of events is time. You see, time allows us the opportunity to do some things that it doesn't seem able to in the moment. If there's something true about in the heat of the moment, is it seems as though time is contracted, it's restricted. And so we, we react, we respond. I want to suggest to you this morning that one of the most profound things that you and I can do when it comes to our conversations, our actions, is learn to insert a pause. You see, when we pause, we do two things. The first thing that we do is we buy ourselves time. We have by ourselves time to consider. I've tried to implement this in my life when it comes to shopping over the years. I'm not sure about you, but sometimes when you go shopping, you might be one of those impulse buyers. The ones who walks in, you hadn't planned on purchasing anything, but in the moment you walk out of the shop and you think, why did I buy these things? I can't afford it. I don't really need it. And I don't really want it. But in the moment, it seemed as though the time had contracted and you got caught up in making a purchase you didn't actually want. So over the years, what I've learned to do is insert a pause into the story, into the conversation. And so I go into a shop now having already pre-decided that what I'm going to do <laughs> is say I'm just looking. So if I've tried something on, if I've interacted with the salesperson and they say, well, would you like this? I usually just say, I'm just thinking, or I might just have some time to think. And I leave the store and I go for a walk. And if it's something I really want, need, or that I can afford, I'll go back. You see, what a pause does is that it buys us time. 
It buys us time to consider the consequences. That's exactly what was happening in this story with Joseph. You had Reuben come and he intersected. There was time between that initial gut reaction, there's that dreamer, and Reuben's conversation. There was time between the sit down and having a meal, which takes time to prepare and to sit down and have a conversation together. Time bought them, if you like, the opportunity. It bought them time to consider, to consider the consequences. The second thing that when you insert a pause can do for you is that it buys you time to cool. It buys you time to cool down your emotions. If there's something true about our emotions is they're like swells on the ocean. They, they come in waves. Emotions pick us up. They lift us up and they want us to catch their wave. And we often find ourselves responding at the peak of the emotion. Have you caught yourself in the last few weeks? Maybe having a joke or a jest with someone, you've poked them a little bit and they've poked back. And with each time, there's been an increase in the emotion and the attention. And before you know it, you catch yourself blurting out something and saying something that you didn't really intend, but you realize afterwards, wounded and hurt and tore someone down. How easy it is to respond in the heat of the moment. The good thing about inserting a pause is that it actually buys ourselves time to cool. It buys ourselves time to uncouple ourselves from our emotions, to think with clearer thoughts. Over the years, and I'm not an expert at this, but I've got into the habit and the practice of actually, in there's a time when I write an email, rather than hit send, particularly if it's a tricky email, rather than hit send, I hit save. And I come back to that email the day after or two days later and I reread it. Oh, how I have saved myself sometimes from a moment I would have regretted. Having read that again and realizing that there is so much emotion in this email, there is so much tension in these words that I just need to start again. Same goes when it comes to a text or or a response, a call on the telephone is that I find myself sometimes now inserting a pause by just giving a delay of time. And that time has bought me time. Inserting the pause has bought me time to cool down. You know, sometimes someone said something to us or behaved in a particular way that we don't realize is just pressing a button in us. There's a wound. There's something that's happened to us in the past. And they didn't really intend to press the wound, but it did. And we find ourselves responding, actually not to them, it's actually out of a woundedness or a hurt or a pain in myself. The allowing myself to ride the wave not only allows me to pause and buy time to stretch out and consider consequences to think ahead, but it also allows me the time to cool off and to think more clearly and to actually insert a pause into my conversations. In fact, that, must be, that might be the most loving and kind and gracious thing that you and I can do. How do you live a life with fewer regrets? With more grace and more poise, more kindness? I wonder if you and I need to learn the art of inserting a pause into our conversations in those in-the-heat-of-the-moment moments. As we finish off this morning, I want to direct you to some of Paul's words. Paul, as a follower of Jesus, had a radical transforming conversion. 
And he writes to people who are also Jesus' followers. And in the book of Ephesians, this is what it says. Paul writes to this newly fledged group of followers of Jesus who are experiencing the presence of, of the Spirit in their life, the Spirit of God that's making changes. And he says these words. Don't let any unwholesome word escape your lips. Instead, say whatever is good and will be useful in building up people so that you will give grace to those who listen. You see, when I lovingly insert a pause into my responses, it allows me time to consider the consequences of my actions. Are these words, are these actions going to build up someone or are they going to tear down? Oh, the pain and the heartache that would have been saved. We would have been delivered from. If we had have asked that question, God, is this going to build up or is this going to tear down? And he goes on and says this, And don't disappoint God's Holy Spirit, the spirit that's been placed in you when you reach out and place your simple, confident trust in Jesus as the one who is God's son risen to new life. The spirit who put God's mark on you to identify you on the day of freedom. That is the day in which God will call all people to account and those who are following and trusting and living for him. It will be the day of freedom and liberation from death and decay and sin and all of its power in a new heavens and a new earth. He said, don't disappoint God's Holy Spirit because the spirit is at work within you. All bitterness and rage, all anger, and I, this, I find this challenging, but he's put the word in here, and yelling. Most yelling has to do with tension and anger. There's some good yelling, but he put it in and yelling. And all blasphemy, put it away from you with all wickedness. Instead, be kind. Be kind to one another. I love this phrase, cherish tender feelings. You see, when you cherish tender feelings, someone does something loving and kind to you, they speak well to you. You pause for a moment and you can hold on to those things and you need to learn how to cherish them. That is to say, these are really good. That was good. This is good. And I want to cherish that because I want to be like that too. Cherish tender feelings for each other. Forgive one another, just as God forgave you in the King. We're going to listen to a song right now. And I wonder how God might be speaking to you. Are there some things that you've said and done all cooped up that you need to go and restore? I wonder if there's a parts of your life that as you're hearing me talk and you're hearing about this, you go, yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. You see, the difference between Christianity and self-help is that self-help is about helping myself myself christianity says actually there's parts of my life i can't help myself out at all i need god's help entirely you see these inserting the pause being a loving gracious thing is a is a learning is a mechanism but the heart behind it is all so difficult to engage so difficult to change but i believe that when we open ourselves up and humble ourselves and name something before God and confess it and bring it to him, that opens up all kinds of opportunities for God's spirit to reach in, forgive and restore and heal and begin to change. So as we hear this song, some of you might want to close your eyes. Some of you might want to open your hands. And I would encourage you to become before a powerful God.
Bring before him all those in the heat of the moments. And if he's speaking precisely to you about a certain thing, would you do what he tells you to do? Would you mend it? Would you insert the pause? Would you live with fewer regrets, more grace, more poise, more kindness in the heat of the moment?